I'm Maureen Berkeley with the Laurel Heights Church of Christ, and we welcome you to our website, lhmacallen.org. That stands for the Laurel Heights Church of Christ in Macallan, Texas. I want to take us to the Old Testament, to the book of Ezekiel. We know Ezekiel first as a prophet. He was also a priest. And Ezekiel chapter 1 verse 3 says, The word of the Lord came expressly to Ezekiel the priest. Here was a man who knew God and was a chosen carrier of God's message to the people in his age. And he also knew people and knew their need to worship and obey God as God directed. Now, as a time reference, think of 590 to 570 years before Christ, during the time Israel was in exile in Babylon. God was not silent during that period of exile. He had men like Daniel and Ezekiel. Through these men, the Lord spoke to the people about their future after the exile period. There was hope, but the message was not, relax, everything will be all right. No, the message included a high level of individual participation in the daily discipline of faithfulness to God while they were in exile. God expected the Jewish exiles in Babylon to be active, to respond to him, to develop their character, to worship, raise their children, and be people of good influence. They were not to wait disobediently. They were to wait obediently for their release from exile. Now, during the exile period, actually to some extent before, there develop various rationales, common sayings, ideas that amounted to excuses. An excuse that might be worded like this in a rather negative tone. There is nothing we can do. We are being punished for what our fathers did. Our forefathers did certain bad things and we endure the consequences. Why should we take responsibility? Why should we do anything? What's the use? Why do anything? Here we are because of the sins of those before us. In Ezekiel chapter 18, we have God's answer to that, given through Ezekiel. We're going to start now with verses 1, 2, and 3 in Ezekiel chapter 18. The word of the Lord came to me. What do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, declares the Lord God, this proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. At various times in the history of a people, earthly wisdom finds expression in a saying, a proverb, or today we might say a soundbite. Everybody says something that sounds clever and that offers some comfort or excuses for inactivity, and over time, so many people repeat it, it takes on perceived credibility. That happened among the exiles. When the saying was passed around, 
the fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. Do you hear the implication in that? It sounds like they're saying, it's not our fault. We are victims. We can't do anything. Our initiative won't make any difference. It was a fatalistic dismissal of personal responsibility. Like a child saying, my teeth are bad because of what my father ate, so why do anything? This proverb may not be often quoted today in our culture, but you hear the equivalent of this a lot. When you challenge someone to account for their ruined behavior, you may hear them blame their parents or refer you to some experience or some history or tough episode they've had. Like someone saying, see, I'm a victim. It doesn't matter what I do now. Everything is against me, already determined. So uh, it's not my fault. Why should I do anything? I tell you, if there is a chance to blame another generation, person, or situation for our own problems, there is sometimes a strong tendency to do so. Examples. Uh, This is kind of a fill-in-the-blank exercise. If my wife would only, and you can fill in the blank with whatever, I would sure be a better husband. In fairness, I need to turn that the other way. Uh, If my husband would, and you can fill in the blank, I would sure be a better wife. And it goes on and on. If the preacher would do better work, if the elders would be more involved, if the members would treat me better, if our forefathers hadn't eaten sour grapes. You see what I'm talking about? You see what's happening? Ezekiel 18 says, regardless of what the previous generation did, you need to come to terms with your present responsibility as an individual. No justifying proverbs, no dismissal of duty, no excuses. If you sin, You are guilty, and you ought to be punished. Through Ezekiel, God said to the exiles, you shall not rely on that proverb. How clear is that? Don't dwell on what your forefathers did or didn't do that might have had some impact on you. Resist the common urge to use history as your justification. Don't blame history to dismiss your present responsibility. If you are just and you do what is lawful and you avoid that which is offensive to God, you have spiritual life. Your father may have been a sinner or a saint. Your mother may have been nurturing or abusive. The people in your past may have helped you or hurt you. The present matter is no matter how difficult it may be. The present matter is, what will you do with your life now? No excuses. Will you walk in the statutes of the Lord? No matter what anyone else does to help you or hinder you, will your resolve of heart be, I'm going to get up every day and I'm going to serve the Lord. Act like God's people, even if my forefathers didn't or even if I had some circumstance that was difficult in my past. You see the point? For the next level of our study, 
in this passage. In one of the most intriguing literary methods in Scripture, Ezekiel gives us four specific cases, all intended to stress personal responsibility. Four case studies. Here in Ezekiel chapter 18, case number one. Case number one is found in Ezekiel 18 verses 5 through 9. And the point of that is the righteous man who enjoys a healthy spiritual life with God. A righteous man enjoys a healthy spiritual life with God. Here is a man who responds to God as God is directed. He is not involved in idolatry, not guilty of adultery. He isn't oppressing anyone. He pays his bills. He's fair with everyone, no robbery, generous to the poor, integrity, justice, walking in the statutes of the Lord. These are the identifying marks of the man's daily life, showing a good heart, acting faithfully toward God. This is simply a good man. And so verse 9 says, he shall surely live. He enjoys a healthy, solid, spiritual life with God. He's alive and well spiritually. If this man continues to live in this manner, even if he dies physically and his body decays, he has the hope of life with God after death. That's case number one, a good man. Case number two is about his son, and that's in verses 10 through 13 of Ezekiel 18. So here is another kind of person. This man is violent, idolatrous, defiles his neighbor's wife, takes advantage of the poor, commits robbery. Why, he is the moral opposite of his father. Have you ever known a son to be the moral opposite of his father? Of course you have. It happens and we see it. We don't assume the father failed. We assume the son made stubborn choices against the example and will of his father. The man described in verses 10 through 13 is lost. And so verse 13 says, he shall surely die. That's not about assassination or execution. It means as far as relationship with God is concerned, he is dead. And spiritual death will be his eternal condition in the absence of repentance. He doesn't get a free ride because of daddy. Because of his lack of good response to God, he is spiritually dead. The good of the father is not transferred to the son. Now this lost son bears a child who turns out to be good. And that's in Ezekiel 18, verses 14 through 18. See, we are now three generations in to Ezekiel chapter 18. First generation, good man. Second generation, not good. Third generation, good man. This third generation man who saw the wickedness of his father wanted nothing of it good for him. So in case number three, there is a man who lives more like his grandfather than his father. No idolatry, no adultery. He obeys the rules of God. 
So verse 17 says, he shall not die for his father's iniquity. He shall surely live. Responding to God as one should, he enjoys a good relationship with God, spiritual life. Case number four. Case number four is described in Ezekiel 18, verse 24. The man described in verse 24 was righteous, but turned back away from his personally chosen righteousness back into sin. Abominations, ruin, treachery. What is his condition? At the end of verse 24, he shall die. Returning to sin, he has walked away from spiritual life towards spiritual death. He has walked away from God. His parents may have been good or not. His grandparents may have been good or not. But this man in verse 24 makes a deadly choice, took a wrong turn, and stands guilty. If it helps, go back through the cases and observe at least three generations, father, son, and grandson. Righteous father, wicked son, righteous grandson, and then in case number four, the apostate. What do we need to understand from all of this? Listen carefully to these points of application. Genetics is no defense against our sin. While genetic tendencies may be subjectively argued, there is no evidence in Scripture that your sin can be laid at the ground of your family tree. In fact, there is specifically a denial in Ezekiel 18 in the text we have just studied. If I may parse this into specifics, please. If you are guilty of adultery or murder or drunkenness or lying, you cannot defend yourself by claiming your father or mother committed those same sins. There is not a case to be made for fixed genetic determinism that cancels free will. If we had nothing but Ezekiel 18, we would know we are not morally locked into the conduct of our forefathers. So I seek clarity here. If your grandfather was wicked and treacherous and your father was a long-term adulterer or criminal, I do understand it is harder for you than those raised in godly homes, but there is no force at work that causes you to sin in the manner of your forefathers. Genetics is not a legitimate defense against sin you have chosen. Genetics offers no exemption from our personal responsibility. Just as I cannot argue that I'm a sinner because my forefathers were, neither can I argue that I can ride on their coattails to heaven. We can thank God if our parents were godly and led us in the right way, but there comes a time when we must walk in the right way ourselves. We must apply what we learned. We must take training and early influence and use that to obey God and live right today. I've been preaching 51 years. 
Sometimes this has happened. I go see a man who is unfaithful, out of duty, nothing about the Lord in his life at all. And I plead with him and admonish him and rebuke him. And about all he can talk about is how good his daddy was. What a godly mother he had. How well he was trained by his grandparents. But he's doing nothing in his present life with those spiritual advantages in his background. Some people may not say but seem to think, because mom and dad were so good, I get a free ride. No. Be thankful for your good parents. Cherish their memories and remember what they taught you, but you must serve the Lord yourself now. Guilt is not inherited. The text does not say, the soul that sinneth its child will die. No, the soul who sins shall die. Never allow yourself to feel guilty about what your parents did that was wrong, or your grandparents, or Adam and Eve. You can regret that someone in your family did something wrong. You can express yourself, if necessary, about that matter, you can carefully avoid repeating the sin. You should not, however, allow yourself to entertain any guilt about it or think that God holds you accountable for what Grandpa did or your uncle did. If you had no part in your relative's sin, if you did all you could to keep them from the ugly grasp of sin, don't beat yourself up. Don't ever... Let anyone's religious doctrine take you down that path. Don't let any misguided person assign guilt to you for your forefathers' sins or the choices of sin evident in your family members. Don't let any emotional distress over some family member's sin let you nurture or accept any guilt about it. Here's a simple rule. If you didn't do it, you're not guilty of it. Certainly, it is true. We must not endorse sin, overlook sin, or lead anyone into sin. But when those elements are not present, you should never accept guilt against yourself because of what others have done that you had no part in. Guilt is not inherited. Consequences may burden us from the sin of others. God said the sins of the fathers would be visited on their children. That's through consequences or influence if the children commit the same sins. But there is no force at work making children guilty of what their fathers did or making them do those things. Guilt is only assigned to the individual transgressor. God's present concern is, what am I doing now? This must be, it must, this must be said, God treats people as individuals. Yes, it is true. What others do may help you or hurt you. Some parents lead their children in the way that is right. Some do not. Except for Adam and Eve, everybody has always had a previous generation to blame. 
But after you make those judgments and tell those stories and make those excuses and plead your cases with many words, it is you and God. God will not punish you for what your father did. God will not reward you for what your father did. In Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 21 says, But if a wicked person turns away from all his sins that he has committed and keeps all my statutes and does what is just and right, he shall surely live, he shall not die. No one will be punished for anyone else's sins, and no one will gain eternal life on the coattails of someone else's favor with God. Individual responsibility, meaning no excuses, no transfer of blame. Let me tag on to our study. We must let God's word have such a deep and living place within us. We consistently take personal responsibility and carefully avoid blaming others or seeking to creatively find some way to dismiss our initiative. Part of the fall was Adam and Eve didn't take full responsibility before and after the sin. King Saul, in that case of incomplete obedience to God in 1 Samuel 15, blamed the people. When Aaron built the golden calf, he said, the people wanted this, and the people blamed Moses. Jesus warns us about trying to find the speck in our brother's eye while we are blinded by a two-by-four in our eye. Here's what I'm talking about. Romans 14, 12, and 13. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Someone said, you can't talk your way out of problems you behave yourself into. That was Stephen Covey. It will be good for me and you to spend some serious time in Ezekiel chapter 18. Just with a focus on me and God, you and God. No circumstantial excuses, no reference to others, being a victim, having a hard life, parents too good or too bad, me and God. You can't talk your way out of trouble you behave yourself into. We thank you very much for listening to this study of Ezekiel chapter 18. I highly recommend that after listening to this recording, you go back now and carefully read the 18th chapter of Ezekiel. We are the Laurel Heights Church of Christ. Thank you.